Hello, Cornerstone. Merry Christmas. So wonderful to be with you. We are just two weeks away from Christmas. I hope you're looking forward to celebrating. I'm super excited to be with my family. Michael and I, we have three sons, two young adults and a teenager. And it's a real treat when all of us are together. I used to think that I couldn't wait to be an empty nester, but it really does go so fast. Michael and I, we have this funny saying, little kids, little problems big kids, big problems, and sometimes I really miss those little problems. I also miss some of the Christmas traditions we used to do when the boys were little, like making gingerbread houses and going to see the Christmas lights in the park. But probably one of my favorites was a nativity scene that we used to put on our mantle with the little porcelain figurines. Starting right about now, about 12 days from Christmas, after the kids went to bed each night, I would put out just one or two figurines. And I do this in a very specific order. The shepherds would go out first, and then the angels the next night, and then the stable animals. You get the idea. And each morning, the kids would excitedly discover the new addition to the growing entourage. And over the course of the 12 days, the anticipation would grow. Joseph and Mary would appear the morning of Christmas Eve, and then finally, the baby Jesus on Christmas morning. It was a really sweet tradition, and I hope our kids will do it with their own kids one day. But I caught myself musing on a simple fact. The shepherds were the first to hear the news of Christ's birth, but why? They're such a permanent fixture of the Christmas story. They show up on Christmas cards and in Christmas carols, so it's easy to overlook them. Let's read from the Gospel of Luke and notice how the shepherds are not just the only recipients of the baby announcement, but they also serve as God's messengers. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. What a privilege for the shepherds to be included that wonderful night. But why did God choose the shepherds? Why not some of the other villagers or the Jewish religious leaders? The author Randy Alkern writes, In Christ's day, shepherds stood on the bottom rung of the Palestinian social ladder. They shared the same unenviable status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. They were illiterate and considered unclean. They were only admitted into the courtyards of the Jewish temple and not allowed inside the temple itself. And the Mishnah, the Jewish written record of the oral law, caused them incompetent and that no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. In other words, they were despised by their own people. But I think God's choice of the shepherds is significant. It wasn't an accident or random. I think his choice sends a message about his character and his ways. 
I remember my first class in business school, one of the topics we explored was barriers to entry. The idea that in order to enter a new market, there are obstacles and hurdles like costs and competitors, for example, that must be overcome just to break into the market to compete, let alone to compete well. And in the same way, Perhaps there are barriers to faith, and maybe God chose the shepherds because they had no such barriers. They were poor and humble and available that night, and they responded to the angel's news. Maybe these characteristics were the secret ingredients to accepting the Lord and finding joy in Him. In contrast, maybe the opposite of these things, money, pride, Busyness can hinder us, not just from belief in Jesus, but from truly experiencing the abundant life the Lord wants us to have through him. We're going to take a closer look at each of these potential barriers, and maybe we can learn a thing or two from the lowly Christmas shepherds. Okay, let's first talk about money. Ironically, shepherding for the Jewish people was once considered noble. And the nomadic patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all wealthy shepherds. But then they migrated to Egypt, and the Egyptians were farmers and detested shepherding because the animals would destroy their crops, and Egypt's Arab enemies were also shepherds. So this Egyptian prejudice against shepherds influ influenced Jewish culture, and 400 years later, after the Jews settled down in Palestine, exchanging their nomadic life for farming, shepherding became one of the lowliest forms of menial labor. So the shepherds during the time when Christ was born were flat out broke. They didn't have money or status or power like their patriarchs did. Their only chance for socioeconomic mobility was to play Powerball. <laughs> okay, just kidding. They did not have lotteries back then, at least not like the ones we have now. But maybe you heard about the Powerball Prize last month. It was the largest in history, over $2 billion. What would you do with $2 billion? You know, the lottery is a very curious thing. It goes against every fiber of common sense, but reveals something very interesting about human nature. Think about this for a minute. As the jackpot goes up, the probability of winning goes down, and yet the more lottery tickets are sold. It really makes no sense. The odds of winning the, the $2 billion Powerball were 292.2 million to one, almost 300 million to one. Just to give you a little comparison, you are more likely to be struck by lightning, not once, but twice, at 9 million to one, or to be bitten by a shark, 3.5 million to one, you'd have a much better chance of winning an Olympic medal, 500,000 to one, or to date a supermodel, 88,000 to one, or to hit a hole in one at 12,000 to one. Although the odds are probably a bit worse for a blind person like me. <laughs> I don't play golf, just in case you're wondering. Okay, no judgment if you bought a Powerball ticket, but why is it that we all want to be rich? I guess it's because it seems like money would solve all our problems and make us happy. But it turns out that winning the lottery does not make us any happier. Dr. Sanjiv Shafra of Harvard says that the winners after about a year go back to their previous happiness baseline, and many of them are even unhappier. 
In fact, numerous studies have found that the income sweet spot for happiness is only about $75,000 a year, the amount needed to cover food, clothing, and shelter. Of course, for us in the Bay Area, it's probably more like double that figure. But the point is, once we have enough money to provide our basic needs, anything above and beyond has a diminishing marginal return and can even complicate our lives and become a stress point, especially if we overextend ourselves and go into debt. And yet, making money is the sole focus for so many. A recent survey of 4,000 millionaires found that regardless of their current income, every single one of them felt a need to at least double their wealth. More evidence of what the Bible already tells us. Whoever loves money never has enough, Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Jesus never said having money was bad. We all have to work and support our families. But he warns us that earthly wealth has no eternal value and urges us to share what we have and in doing so storing treasure in heaven and not on earth. Listen to what he says. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A friend of mine used to go to Central America every year for short-term missions, and one summer she befriended a little eight-year-old girl whose only earthly possessions were the clothes on her back and a little rag doll. She didn't even own shoes. And this little girl gave the doll to my friend. And my friend tried to refuse the gift, but the little girl insisted. What a contrast to the millionaires who desired more and more and more. Isn't it interesting how a generous heart can still bloom in the midst of financial poverty? Hebrews 13.5 encourages us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Maybe God chose the shepherds because they were content despite their poverty. And maybe contentment enabled that little girl to part with her doll so easily. The way of Jesus is contentment and generosity, while the pursuit of material wealth will never satisfy. So let's be content with what we have. How do we do that? Here's a few ideas. First, live within our means. Live within our means. The best thing about money is when we don't have to worry about it, right? So regardless of our income bracket, living within our means guards against stress from money problems. If we tend to overspend, make a budget, and let's get serious about it. And let's also prioritize getting out of debt. Second, count our blessings. Count our blessings. Rather than focusing on what we don't have, let's be grateful for what we do have. And wealth is so relative. You probably heard this before, but if you make more than $45,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the people on this entire globe. And third, give generously. Give generously. The Lord blesses us so that we can bless others. Paul tells us, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Giving pleases the Lord and takes the focus off of our own desires and onto the needs of others. We don't have to have a mindset of scarcity or hoarding because the Lord promises to provide for us. 
And more and more studies show that giving, unlike lotteries, actually does make us happier and is even correlated to a longer life. Okay, let's talk about another potential obstacle, pride. I have two uncles, brothers who profess faith in the Lord, but they haven't spoken in decades, and it's not clear if they even remember what started it, but they are both too proud to make the first move toward reconciling, and their feud has fractured our family for as long as I can remember. Maybe you have a similar situation in your own family. Pride wounds and alienates. It's arrogant. It forgets that it's more important to be kind than to be right. It holds grudges and can grow into a spirit of unforgiveness. And a heart that is unforgiving is not peaceful and free, but hard and bitter. And that is not what the Lord wants for us. Peter tells us, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Other translations say, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever tried to hold two magnets together on the wrong ends? There's kind of this force field between them. The magnets are kind of opposed to each other. There's this resistance when you try to push them together. That is the nature of pride. It's like an invisible barrier that cuts us off from the Lord and also from one another. Maybe God chose the shepherds to send the message that only through humility can we come into his grace. You see, the shepherd class were not only menial laborers, but stereotyped as sinners. There was this prevalent thinking in Jewish culture that God blessed you according to your level of righteousness. So if you were part of the upper class, like the Pharisees or the wealthy merchants, you were a righteous dude. And if you weren't, you were a sinner. They didn't get it that we are all sinners, that we all fall short of the glory of God. God's invitation to the shepherd implies that the shepherds were humble in heart. They knew they were sinners who needed a savior. You know, it's an interesting paradox. Pride can be best described as an unwillingness to yield or submit to the Lord. It's really self-worship. It's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. The attitude of, I don't need you, Lord. I'm going to do things my way. In essence, it's like we're placing ourselves on the throne that rightly belongs to the Lord. And yet, the Lord's nature is the complete opposite. This is the paradoxical part. He willingly relinquished that throne and humbled himself into the form of a man and was obedient to death to forgive our sins so that we could have eternal peace with him. The way of Jesus is selfless and forgiving and leads to peace whereas pride is self-serving and isolating and destroys our relationships. So to overcome pride, let's humble ourselves just like Jesus did. How do we do that? Three ideas. First, give God the credit. Give God the credit. I know this can be hard when we live in a culture of achievement and self-glorification, but remember that everything we have is from the Lord. He created us, he gave us our gifts and talents, he blesses us, and he saved us. So rather than taking credit or boasting regarding our successes and giving pride a foothold in our hearts, give the credit to the Lord, glory to God, for without him, we can do nothing. Second, get a checkup on your heart, get a heart checkup. 
When we pray, ask the Lord daily to reveal any pride or sin. I love this prayer of David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a good one to memorize. We can just pray it out to the Lord or we can simply ask him, search me and show me my sin, Lord. And if he reveals something, ask for forgiveness and follow through with my next idea, which is pursue peace, pursue peace. The Lord wants us to live in peace with one another, not a fake peace when we're pretending that everything is okay, but true peace, peace here. I like how Paul puts it in Romans, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. He says, all that you can. Another translation says, as far as it depends on you. He's saying that the onus is on us. Sometimes that means letting something go, not repaying evil with evil. Other times it means making the, making the first move toward reconciling and leaving the door open. We can't control the other person's response, but we can be the one to extend grace, the one to forgive just as Christ forgave us. Finally, I think the Lord chose the shepherds that night because they were simply available. They were simply available. I imagine that the shepherds did not have very busy social lives, given that they were so unpopular. On the other hand, the religious leaders probably kept very busy. You know, it's a lot of work to enforce all those Jewish laws and be so self-righteous. I'm kind of making fun of the Pharisees. I don't want to be too harsh because some of them like Nicodemus and Paul did come to understand the truth of Jesus. But most of them were very distracted with activities that they thought had value. And as a result, they missed out on the real action, the presence of the true Messiah, the very person they were waiting for. But are we any different? Are we too busy or distracted to experience the presence of the Lord? The Lord says, be still and know that I am God. But in our culture, we value being productive, right? Not stillness. Being still feels idle and lazy, like we're wasting time. So the norm is busyness. And all the noise from the digital age does not help. There's so much competing for our attention out there. And thanks to the supercomputer in our pocket, even when we're not doing anything, we're still busy. I read these scary statistics on reviews.org. Listen to this. The average American checks their phone, you want to guess? 344 times a day. That's like once every four minutes. 70% of us check our phone within 10 minutes of waking up in the morning. We spend an average of three hours a day on our phones, and this does not include computer screen time. And two-thirds of us admit to texting someone in the same room. Okay. I totally do that, but only because my kids wear those noise-canceling headphones and they can't hear me. That's my excuse. The author and priest Ron Rollheiser says, we are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in movies, sports, and shopping, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in God. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. I think there's some truth to that. Okay, not all busyness is bad. Some of us have very demanding jobs and are just trying to survive. And for many of us, the pandemic helped us push that reset button on our crazy schedules. 
but some of us may still suffer from this pathological busyness, the stuff that has questionable value. Moreover, when we're busy, we hurry. One night I was putting my son Bruno to bed. He must have been about three years old. This kid was just a ball of energy since the day he was born and would totally wear me out. I couldn't wait for him to go to bed every night. And one night I came up with this brilliant game. I called it Speed Bed. And the object of the game was to get ready for bed as fast as possible. And Bruno was totally up for the challenge. So I got him washed up, changed, tucked in, read to, prayed for in less than 10 minutes flat. I bolted for the door so close to my escape, I could taste it. But then as I'm shutting the door behind me, he says to me, hey, mom, speed bed was fun, but what's the rush? Teachable mommy moment. I went back to him and we snuggled until he fell asleep. When you ask older people, what would you do differently if you had to do it all again? They don't answer with things like work more, clean more, rush around more. They say things like, I wish I would have been more present. I wish I had worked less, focused on my family and my relationship with the Lord more. The philosopher Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life and urged followers of Jesus to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. I really like that. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. A pastor named John Mark Comer wrote a book with that very title, and he asserts that Jesus was a busy guy, but he was never in a hurry, and how hurry goes against the core of who Jesus is, peace, love, and joy, and that you cannot rush these things. Think about the last time you were running late for something. Did you feel peaceful as you're scrambling out of the house? Did you feel loving when you were yelling at your kids to hurry up? Did you feel joyful when you and your son got into a huge tiff because you were criticizing his crazy driving? Totally true story. And it always seems to happen on the way to church. Jesus literally is love, joy, and peace. And he did not rush around, constantly checking his watch, but made time for everyone he encountered. He was always fully present. And even when he was interrupted with an emergency, like the time his friend Lazarus was dying, he did not hurry. He continued to give his full attention to the people he was with. Following Jesus is not just about belief and faith, but it's also about action and behavior, which requires time and attention. Jesus had certain habits and a rhythm by which to do them. We call these habits spiritual disciplines, reading scripture, praying and fasting, attending weekly corporate worship, spending time in solitude to be with his father, and of course, serving everyone around him. The way of Jesus is unrushed, intentional, and disciplined, but busyness and hurry deter us from following the Lord and his habits effectively. And it makes me wonder if we could give him more attention, how much more love, peace, and joy could we experience on a daily basis? There's a new spiritual discipline emerging to help us with this predicament, and it's called slowing. The idea is to slow down the pace of our 21st century lives, slow down our minds and our bodies to retrain ourselves, to be fully present in the moment, and to intentionally modify our habits and routines so that we can make more room for the Lord. Like the Christmas carol, Joy to the World says, let every heart prepare him room 
Let's slow down and make more room for our king. So I have some examples of slowing to share. Some of these are taken straight from Comer's book. Some are ideas that I've been working on in my own life. These are just suggestions. So figure out what works for you. Here we go. The first is leave more margin on the calendar. Many of us are overcommitted, especially over the holidays. I am the worst. And it doesn't help that I'm extroverted. It's really hard for me to say no, but I wanna be more intentional. I wanna create more space because less is more. Less is less stressful, and less means that I'm more available when the Lord wants me to respond to a need. The next idea, tame our tech. Tame our tech. Don't check your phone until after you've had your morning quiet time. Maybe put it to bed in another room each night. Here's a wild and crazy idea. Turn off notifications on your phone rather than reaching for it every time it pings. Check your phone just a few times throughout the day. Maybe cut back on the time we spend on entertainment and social media. Reed Hastings, the co-founder of Netflix, once admitted that his competitors were not Amazon Prime or Disney Plus, but sleep. Raise your hand if you've ever pulled an all-nighter binging Netflix. <laughs> totally guilty. Okay, the next idea about how to slow down is to physically slow down. Move more slowly through the world. Walk slower, drive slower, maybe even the speed limit. What a concept. Pick the longest checkout line on, on purpose and with the extra time, look around, breathe, talk to God, pray for someone, make eye contact and smile at somebody. Another happiness study revealed that making daily eye contact with strangers is emotionally beneficial to us. And here's my last idea. When we feel overwhelmed, just take a Sabbath moment. Take a Sabbath moment. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means stop. And the traditional, traditional Sabbath is a day set aside to both rest and worship the Lord. If you observe a weekly Sabbath, that is fantastic. If you don't, you can still practice the spirit of it. Just stop, take a deep breath, do it with me now, and be still for just a moment. Acknowledge the Lord, think about his goodness. Yes, Lord, you are so good and let his peace wash over you. Feels good. Okay, as I close, let's go back to that nativity scene. The one figurine that I always wanted to add to the mix was the little drummer boy. A few years ago, I was serving in the children's nursery during the Christmas season, and we played a video of the little drummer boy. And I've sung this song probably thousands of times over my lifetime, but for some reason that morning, the lyrics pierced my heart, especially the second verse, the part that goes, little baby, I am a poor boy too. I have no gift to bring that's fit to give our king. Shall I play for you on my drum? And I'm not sure what was going on with me, but as I listened to the song, I got really emotional. Maybe it was because I was holding a baby in my arms and it made me think of how quickly my own babies had grown up. I thought about the years that I chased the things of this world, so busy accumulating and accomplishing. I thought of all the mistakes I've made, all the struggles of identity and health and relationships. And I realized that I'm just like the little drummer boy, a poor girl too, a poor helpless sinner for whom Christ stepped out of heaven, shrinking down, 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 down. 
into the form of a tiny human baby, only to die on a cross for some crazy, ridiculous, but wonderful notion called love. And in that moment, in the same way the drummer boy had nothing to give but to simply play his drum, I realized that I have nothing to give the Lord either. Nothing. Except for my heart. But you know what? That's all he really wants. And if you are carrying stress and anxiety today, he wants that too. And he wants to give you his peace in exchange. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. I love that he associates himself with our lowly Christmas shepherds, and he transforms the once despised image of the shepherd to a cherished one of love and grace. In a moment, the band is going to play the little drummer boy for us. Let's sing it all together to the Lord and offer our hearts to him. My hope for all of us this Christmas is that we can just slow it down cast off all the things that hinder us from being real and present and engaged and just be open and available to our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to save us. Thank you for revealing who you are through the details of the Christmas story, how you chose the shepherds to represent your heart. We praise you, Lord, for Jesus, the good and gentle shepherd. May we follow after him this Christmas and all the days of our lives. Amen.
the beauty of the gift of song. You know, Christmas was a season filled with song. When Jesus came into this world, the heavens broke open and the angels declared the glory of the Lord. I'm so looking forward to the journey we're all making together till we get to that moment when we actually celebrate the coming of Christ with people all over the world. But in the meantime, I just want you to be blessed. The peace that we were exploring and talking about today the barriers that we were talking about, not letting get in the way. You know, I really want you to know not just the love of Christ, but the peace of Christ, the shalom of Yeshua Jesus, the Messiah who has come. Lord, fill our hearts, quell, quell the rustling of our soul. <sighs> Stir us towards your peace. I pray for all of you. I ask the Lord's blessing upon you over your body, your spirit, your soul, your mind, your relationships, uh, your well-being. Yeah. Lord, just help us to be open to you in these coming days. We really want to celebrate you well. Keep our hearts soft. Help us to be focused on you and all that you have for us. You are so loved. Let's go to Bethlehem together. Followers of Jesus on the way. <laughs>